1: Making change is never easy, but it doesn't get much harder than being a change maker in an authoritarian state. Places like Singapore, Hong Kong, China and Russia place aggressive restrictions on how you can advocate for change, limiting how you can gather in assembly, how you can speak and for whom you can vote. Many of us in the West take for granted these basics, but places like Singapore show us that they aren't a given. Indeed, the authoritarian turn that is happening in places like the US means, frighteningly, that we might have a lot to learn from places that have experience in dealing with limits to the rule of law. Today's guest on Changemaker Chats is Jollivan Wham. His changemaking focuses on the rights of migrant workers, the people who do tasks like cleaning your house. These workers make up one-third of Singapore's workforce. They have few rights but Jollivan shares some stories about how people are trying to change this. Jollivan also shares with us the strategies of authoritarianism, like how the state blocks people from working in coalition, frequently arrests changemakers, and undertakes police intimidation and surveillance. Making change is always tough, but Jollivan shows us how it's possible to make change even in the toughest of places. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. You can check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, you're all set. Yes. Okay. Cool. So, what do you do that makes you a change maker?
0: Um, my background is in social work, so that's what I studied at university. So, for the last fifteen years, I've been a social worker and a migrant labour activist for low wage migrant workers in Singapore. And um, I and the organisation that I'm associated with, it's called Home. It runs shelters, help desks, legal aid programs, and we do campaigns on behalf and together with um, migrant workers. So migrant workers in Singapore they face pretty appalling conditions. Um, domestic workers, for instance, are not protected by labour law. At all. Yeah, they're not protected by labour law at all. So if, so they don't have mandatory days off, um, they don't at have...
1: all. No days off. So then they sort of need someone to campaign for the weekend.
0: Yes, that's right. That's so, you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was involved in a campaign to get the day off legislation enshrined into the, um, into our books, and um, we were able to do that. But unfortunately, the law that got um, passed allows for employers to pay these domestic workers in lieu of their day off.
1: Ah, oh, right. Right.
0: <laughs> and this this means that you can pay them just like twenty dollars Singapore oh no. twenty dollars a day. Yeah, so you can get the domestic worker to sign off all of her day offs for her entire contract by just paying her $80 a month extra.
1: Oh, God.
0: So, this is just one of um, many abuses that domestic workers in Singapore um, suffer from. They don't have statutory public holidays, sick leave, annual leave, there are no limits to their working hours. And many of them are not even allowed to leave the house or use their mobile phones. So they're practically like slaves yeah, trapped in their employers' homes.
1: Yeah, I, and I don't think many people, well, certainly I don't, uh, know very much about the situation of migrant workers in Singapore. How many migrant workers are there in Singapore?
0: Well, there are approximately um, one million of them. So they make up one third of Singapore's workforce. So we're a small country. Of um, f- about five million people, and um, three million are Singaporeans. So about one million are low wage migrant workers. So they can be found not just as so they're not just domestic workers, but they're also construction workers. They work in the ports, in the marine industry, in the services sector. So if all of our migrant workers went on strike, the entire Singaporean economy collapses. Yeah, the, we are so dependent on their labor to keep the econo- economy going.
1: Wow, but their conditions are sort of akin to that of slavery.
0: Yes, they are. We don't have minimum wage, and there's no anti-discrimination legislation. So I have met Bangladeshi workers who are just paid $1.50, $2 an hour. And this is in a country oh where God. the cost of living is one of the highest in the world. Yeah, And this it's perfectly legal you know, for workers to be paid this amount because the government says, well, these are con- these are contractual. It's a willing seller, willing buyer kind of market. So if the worker is willing to accept that, then who's to say that um, um, he shouldn't work in Singapore for that wage?
1: And has this changed? Like, have there always been a large number of migrant workers in Singapore or has this been a, a sort of a, a rapid increase in the number of migrant workers?
0: And there has been a rapid increase in the last 15 years or so. So we've always had low-wage migrant workers in Singapore. It's just that... Um, Increasingly, as um, locals started to shun these jobs, there was a need to bring in migrant labourers to fill up these vacancies because many locals don't want to do these kinds of back-breaking jobs anymore as the population gets more educated and more middle class. So, So these men and women are brought in to basically take up these jobs that nobody wants.
1: So there's a second thing that I think is pretty interesting about you, which is, so you're being an activist in Singapore. That's right. Right. So tell us a little bit about how, how that goes. Like, what is it like? I mean, it's not like being in Australia, which has a whole bunch of, you know, civil rights and protections for doing certain sorts of pu- free speech and freedom of assembly. What is it like to be a, an activist in a place like Singapore? What are some of the risks you take in speaking out?
0: Um, there are severe constraints for activists in Singapore. Um Myself, I, I face eight charges um, by the Singapore government and I've just been found guilty of one of the charges that they've slapped on me and that is for scandalising the judiciary. So last week, um, the judge pronounced me guilty of um, suggesting that the Singapore courts are less independent than the Malaysian ones for cases with political implications. So I said that on a Facebook post and it was only one sentence with about twenty likes,
1: oh my god! So,
0: so the government saw that post and they decided to charge me for that. And um, the punishment, which the prosecutors are recommending, is a ten to fifteen thousand dollar fine. And if I don't pay that fine, it's between two to three weeks in jail. And I also have to pay eight thousand dollars for the prosecutor's costs. Yeah, so that's just one charge and. And and, and and the verdict was out on this last week. So I have seven other charges, um, and um, they involve very other direct action protests that I've been involved in. Um, one of which was for a convicted drug trafficker who was facing the death penalty. So in Singapore, you can be you can you face the death penalty if you traffic drugs. And what I did at the time was to co-organize um, a candlelight vigil for this man outside the prisons. And about 10 to 15 people came for this event. Um, we had only just started lighting candles and, and, and putting um, pictures and our paraphernalia against the wall outside the prison. And then the police came and said we had to clear our stuff. And they said that this vigil was an illegal one and we had to clear out. So shortly after, uh, two months later, they decided to investigate all of us and we were all brought into the police station. We had to give a statement. And, um, and finally, at the conclusion of the investigations, they are charging me for organising this vigil with 15 people. And I will be facing, and I have to go to court for that. So I face um, maximum punishment of um, fine and, and, and a jail term of up to six months uh, for, for organising this vigil.
1: For doing the sort of thing that, say, someone like me in a place like Australia just does.
0: Yes, that's right. And it it probably wouldn't even register a blip, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But in Singapore it's taken so seriously, it's seen as a transgression. And um and they want to punish people who organize and do things like that so that they can warn the others, warn other activists, warn other citizens from participating in similar Activities.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what's the purpose of all of this? So, I mean, Singapore is sometimes talked of as an authoritarian regime.
0: Yeah, it is an authoritarian regime. So when you go there, you may be very impressed by the airport, which is often ranked, like, among the top in the world. And if you go to the financial district, you know, tall buildings and everywhere it's clean, um, and um, it it appears very civilised, but we scratch beneath the surface there are all these gross human rights violations and exploitation and abuse that's happening that most of the rest of the world doesn't know.
1: So it sounds like it's pretty high stakes to get involved in this kind of activism. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about why on earth you consistently take these kinds of risks with your life to try and change, to change your home, okay? So I guess the the broader question is, so Go back, go way back. You're an activist around migrant um, migrant workers. That's right. And you know, domestic workers, construction workers. Where do you, do you think that your first um, passion, interest, concern for this issue, where did that come from?
0: Um, well, I grew up in a middle class family in Singapore. So, um, and I grew up during the 1980s, and that was when it was getting popular for Singaporean families to hire domestic workers to take care of um, children and to do the cleaning, the cooking, etc. So so my family hired uh, a Filipino domestic worker. So ever since I was a child, um, I've always been taken care of by a domestic worker. So I formed um, a pretty good relationship you know, with the domestic workers that worked in my house. And um, through talking to them, I had a lot of insights into the kinds of struggles that they faced when uh, back in their home countries. And there was one particular time I remember very clearly was when my, my mom decided to give our Indonesian domestic worker a, a day off. And then she shared with us that all her friends started scolding her. They said, "Why do you, why would you want to do that? Why do you want to uh, let her go out because when she goes out she's going to start talking to other domestic workers and God forbid she might have a boyfriend from the construction site opposite the house and if uh, and and then she starts and then when she gets into trouble she's going to um, climb all over your head and, and give you attitude and her oh work will start to slacken and then she will and then she will start agitating other domestic workers to have days off and all this. She'd like to be a person,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> my God. So so there was this scaremongering going on among m- my my wow. mother's friends. Yeah. Yeah. And and I remember as a child when I was listening to that and I could feel just how innately unfair and unjust that was. And I th- thought to myself, you know, I hate to go to school every day, Mondays to Sundays. So why would I expect our live-in domestic worker to want to work for us every day of the week? Yeah so, so so that was how how it started and um I'm I'm also I'm also gay yeah so I'm a persecuted minority in Singapore so we face a lot of discrimination so I also draw from that experience because I know what it's like to be discriminated against so when I see that happening with low wage migrant workers so I feel a deep sense of um solidarity with their struggles
1: yeah, yeah. So, from that experience, I mean, was that the reason why you decided to, to do social work?
0: Yes. Um, when I wanted to do social work, um, back then I didn't have a rights based framework because um, in, in Singapore, everything is depoliticized. The social work department in which I did my course was a, it's a depoliticized department. So, I went into social work wanting to help the disadvantaged. Yeah, so, so that's how it's framed.
1: Right, give them a big cuddle. Actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I
0: wanted to do something to, to uplift the poor. Sure, you know? sure. So, so that was the kind of idea that I had. But as I started providing assistance, doing casework, and meeting other social workers and activists from the region internationally, and then that was when I, had, I started to develop a, a vocabulary and a broader framework about what my role is In 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 organizing the migrant labor community, doing advocacy and and providing assistance.
1: So, how would you describe that new language that you started to land on?
0: Yeah. So so they're not like so so I started to understand that um those who are poor and oppressed they're not like down there for you to um give a rope and to pull them up Mm. yeah but it's also it's it's a process of um empowering them. Um, with their rights, um, struggling and fighting with them in solidarity, rather than just for them alone. Yeah, so so this is what I started to understand in terms of what I could do as a social worker to ensure that their rights are being upheld.
1: Mm. Were you doing any reading at the time? Like, do you remember, um, like, what helped you shift from that idea of being a sort of uh, sort of service-client relationship to being a sort of peer-to-peer solidarity relationship? Was there something that really triggered that for you?
0: Um, not in particular, but I think it was a gradual process of just talking to people and meeting um, other community organisers and activists. Yeah. But having said that, it is very difficult um, to, to organise migrant workers in Singapore because of the huge restrictions um, that they face. For instance, um, they can't form their own unions or their own associations, and um, if they do, they run the risk of being deported. And they can't. They even find it difficult to speak up for their own rights in the media, or to or to give a public statement, or to make a comment, or to criticize government policy publicly, because when you do that, you are seen as creating trouble. And there was an instance um, a few years ago uh, that I heard of when some Indonesian domestic workers wanted to um, participate uh, in, in a panel and um, the, the police officers got wind of it and called their employers yeah, and said that, um, do you know that your domestic worker is doing this? Yeah, so these are like threats and wow. things that the state can do against you to frighten you into submission.
1: Yeah, so there's the law that prevents you organising, and then that's there's right. like the intimidation. Yes, as well.
0: Yes, that's oh. right. Yeah, there's actually a regulation um, directed at migrant workers, which says that if they engage in immoral and undesirable activities, and this is the actual phrasing, yeah, they are in breach of um, the employment terms in Singapore, and they could be sent back and blacklisted and not. Allowed to come back to Singapore to work again, immoral. Yes, immoral and undesirable activities. So that's the actual wording in the regulation. Yeah, and um, domestic workers are also not allowed to marry Singaporeans without the permission of the government. And if the government says no, uh, you are not allowed to appeal that process. And the decision-making um, mechanisms are also very untransparent. Yeah, and um, and there's also a six-monthly medical checkup. That they have to go for. So if you are pregnant or you are found to have HIV, that information will be disclosed to your employer and the oh. recruiter, and then you will be deported. And you you deported
1: if you are pregnant.
0: That's right. So women migrant workers, women low wage migrant workers, especially domestic workers, are not allowed to be pregnant.
1: Yeah. Oh my god! Like you know, it's you know, because I was thinking when you were talking. Oh, it reminds me of apartheid. Right. You know, it reminds me of. Like it reminds me of bad things around the world, but oh my gosh, you can't even have a child.
0: Yes, and um, so so these are the kinds of systemic violations that's that's happening on a, on a daily basis, which not many people know about.
1: People don't know, <laughs> right? Like I know you you are fully aware, and <laughs> I hope lots of people in Singapore are outraged. But I think that one of our problems is that we're ignorant of some of this.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So. You finish your degree, and you started to develop a new language. I just want to backtrack to that Mm -hmm, a little bit, mm -hmm. and you talked, um, and then you ended up setting up this organization called Home.
0: So I I helped to co-found it. I didn't set it up, but I was um, involved in it. Helped to co-found it.
1: it. Oh, that's that's like a modesty line, right? (laughs) No, no, no. no. Seriously, I
0: I um, I I met um, the founder at the time when she had just registered the organization and I offered to help out and to develop many of the programs that it's running today.
1: So it's an acronym. Tell us what, the, what it stands for.
0: Well, it's the Humanitarian Organisation for Migration Economics. So it's quite a mouthful, but even the name had to be carefully thought out Yeah, because uh, migrant rights activists in Singapore during the 1980s, they were arrested and detained without trial, and the longest political prisoner um who was arrested and detained was um was tortured and imprisoned for two years. yeah, so she was so so you
1: knew this before you said this they helped get involved, yeah
0: yes, I I, I knew it. I knew about it
1: so like can we just stop for a second and go so what what how did you handle the fear that that could happen to you?
0: um I don't know, I guess maybe I was um, naive at the time or I didn't think it would happen to me because it was like 20 years ago and I thought to myself, you know, oh, things may ha- you know, have changed and you know, I don't think they will do this to activists anymore. And, um, but I was driven by a, a sense of purpose and I thought, you know, if I were to keep censoring myself and, and get scared of like shadows in the yeah. corners, you know, then I'll never get anything done
1: yeah. yeah
0: so i felt that it was important for me to act by my conscience and to stand up for values that i believed in mm-hmm.
1: yeah and so the the name um like when i look at the name like the actual words in the name not yeah. home but the words in the name i sounds like a think tank almost you know right. like it's sort of abstract and right. and, and yeah. separate um your was it were all the people who set it up were they singaporean
0: Yes, yes. Those who were set it up at the time were Singaporean mm-hmm. and permanent residents. So mm-hmm. the name is—it's um, deliberately um, kept kind of innocuous. Mm. Yeah. So it's like we call ourselves humanitarian. Yeah. Because we understood that to give a political character, yeah, to the work and the organ- and, and and to the organization would prevent it from being registered. And and in fact, when the organization was registered, we were told very specifically that we could not engage in union or union-like activities, and if we did, uh, we run the risk of um, violating our our organization's constitution, uh, and we could be penalized for it.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, how did you start? You know, so you register, you set up some programs. Like, but but how, did you, how did you start connecting with migrant workers?
0: Well, we, we started with what was the most basic need. Yeah, there were abused workers that needed a place to stay. Because if you have a pay dispute or if you're being physically abused, obviously it's not practical for you to live with your employer anymore.
1: Oh because everyone lives in like a dormitory and...
0: Yes, that's right. So so migrant... keep
1: forgetting. The, right. the conditions are so awful. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Let's keep going. Yes, yeah. so so
0: like domestic workers, it's a live-in situation. It's yeah. compulsory for it to be live-in. Yeah. And or if you're a construction worker, you had to live in a dormitory or living quarters provided for by your employer. So if you if if you had a dispute with with your employers, you you need to leave yeah because yeah. they could continue to harass you continue to abuse you so we started from that very basic need yeah we didn't start off saying oh you know we need to change this and change that you know so it was a very ground up gradual process yeah so then when we started housing them then we listened to them more then we realized oh my god there are all these other issues that need to be dealt with yeah and then we accompanied the workers to to the labor ministry which is called the Ministry of Manpower in Singapore um, to file their manpower. claims it's called manpower <laughs> yeah that's right
1: <laughs> so,
0: so, so, we, so we would accompany them and then we would sit outside as um, their claims were being mediated yeah, so, so we journeyed with them through the whole process of um, getting what they wanted and that gave us very unique insights into the struggles that they face. Yeah, because the regulations could say one thing, but how they're enforced is another. Yeah, and we started to identify these little gaps and loopholes and you know, all the difficulties they face. Yeah, just trying to claim two months' salary. Yeah, so um, so so that unique insight gave us the an, an opportunity to do our advocacy. Yeah, and then the government had to take what we said seriously. Yeah, because it was based on, um, an knowledge um that we gleaned from talking to the workers and assisting them and 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 they knew that we were not talking bullshit mm. you know because we're there we see exactly what's happening
1: and what's interesting to me and is that you know because I have done some union organizing too but in a different obviously a really different context and not that you're doing union organizing worker organizing worker organizing in a different context not even that just talking to workers in a different context and um Often in a place like Australia, there's a real um, uh, sort of separation between what is called service work, what you're descri- like what you're describing, getting people better wages or or, or fixing grievances at work, and um, advocacy or organising, which is sort of pushing the envelope on making things better. People people sometimes see those things as separate, but actually, what you're saying is that really good, so-called service work, is can be intimately connected to good organising mm-hmm. if you're consistently using a listening process and a sort of movement-building process through all of that activity.
0: Yes, that's right. So, so we involve not just those who are um, survivors of abuse and exploitation, but also those who are not, migrant workers who are not, and we get them involved in the process. We have consultations with them, and we arrange for dialogues with, between them and their embassies, for instance, yeah, so so that you know they start to be um, the ones who are articulating their own concerns. It just becomes more difficult if we are dealing with the Singapore government because it is authoritarian. So if we organize them to criticize or to go against Singapore government policies, then that's when they become very vulnerable. Yeah, so our organizing is limited to things which do not collide so directly with yeah. the Singapore government.
1: They, yeah, from everything you've said, I sort of feel like the sort of outtake of how to deal with an authoritarian space is to be incredibly wise in how you articulate your strategy or frame your campaigns or mm-hmm. frame your work because the, because the stakes are so high.
0: Yes, that's right. They are. And actual lives could yeah. be impacted you know, because if she loses her job, then who's going to feed her family? Yeah. Yeah. So these are consequences that we need to be very cognizant of and to take into consideration each time we're involved in this work. Yeah.
1: So then you you mentioned at the beginning that um, you ended up running a campaign around the extra day, and mm-hmm. I know that you said that it had limitations in its in in its when when it came into reality. But I'm interested in how you were able to advocate around a campaign like that. Mm-hmm. How how did you how did you make that happen?
0: Well when it happened actually there was a, there was a backlash from the government. Um they were not happy that we were going ahead with this campaign. So when we launched it, um the government called all the NGOs who were involved in this campaign for a meeting. Yeah, and they wanted us to stop it. Yeah. So but in the negotiation process, we said we can't stop this campaign. I mean we've put in so much work for it. Yeah. So so, so in the end what they wanted us to do was to tone it down yeah so how did they want us to tone it down? Uh, we wanted to do a parliamentary petition yeah um, and get it publicized. They were against that. yeah so then we had to turn our parliamentary petition to an online one and um at the time we had also put up posters along um, the mrt trains and this mm-hmm. is um, Singapore's underground like subway, right so we had posters um in the train stations um, which urged employers to give their domestic workers a day off. So we used the word slave. We said, your domestic worker is not a slave. yeah. So give her a day off. And they objected to the word slave, because they said it's too emotive, it's too extreme, there are no slaves in Singapore, so can you not use that word? yeah? So so they wanted us to, to remove the posters and to change it. We said, no, that's, that's not possible, because the posters are already up. Yeah, but the government then proceeded to remove it for us anyway. Yeah, so we had no say in the process. And then they also knew that we were going to talk to various schools as part of our outreach. So, so they sent a memo to all the schools in, um, in Singapore uh, to tell them not to engage us. Yeah. So, so they pretty much blocked all these channels yeah. Um, for our campaign. And they also had a meeting with the editors of the newspapers and because there's no independent media in Singapore, there's no independent mainstream media, um, the editors then toned down um, the the, the stories and the coverage of the campaign.
1: Wow. So you just were, the government actively, systematically isolated you.
0: Yes, they did. From
1: NGOs, Mm -hmm. from the media, Mm -hmm. at every turn.
0: And they can do that because they control everything. Yeah, so the demo, whatever the democratic and space in Singapore is just so small. Yeah, you it's so easy to be cornered and crowded out.
1: God, and we complain. <laughs> and I mean, tell me a little bit about the civil society in which you work. I mean, I, I imagine it's. I mean, in every country, right? Civil society is complex. Some. Uh, uh, very grassroots, and some with some uh, international NGOs and some uh, different kinds of organisations. What's civil society like in Singapore?
0: Well, um, it tends to be very service-oriented and charitable in nature. So there are a lot of, so there are hundreds of charities, but there are only a handful of advocacy and human rights groups. Yeah, and um, and they tend to be single issue groups. Because the government um, um, will insist that in your in, in the organization's constitution that you stick to whatever um, um, issue that you set yourself up to do. so if you are concerned about women's rights, you just focus on women's rights issues if you are if you are doing migrants' rights, you just do migrants. so there's very little intersectionality yeah. as a result of that, and very little solidarity mm. yeah. so if for instance um, some a Singaporean, yeah, um faces human rights violations. As a migrant rights organization, I'll be I, I will be limited in what I can do. Yeah, because my constitution only says I can serve migrants. So so there's very little opportunities for me to to like uh make a public statement. Yeah. And because then I'm I will be seen as going beyond the ambit of what I've set out to do.
1: That's interesting. I didn't know that, right? So so the prevention of alliance building has been a strategy yes. of an authoritarian government.
0: Yes, that's right. So um, you could take the risk and do it, but when the government sees you gaining momentum in doing that, that's when they will start to crack down and have meetings with you and say, um, you know, look at your society's constitution. It doesn't say you can um, talk about um, politics. It doesn't say you can deal with um, affairs that aren't, you're not supposed to be concerned with. Yeah. So that's enough to paralyze many activists mm. and people involved in these groups,
1: mm. are they fake NGOs?
0: Oh yes, yes, definitely. All authoritarian countries have fake NGOs. They're called gongos, right? Government organized NGOs. Yeah. So, so the government
1: government organized non government organizations. <laughs> Let's just right. get that clear. There's a
0: Wikipedia entry on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so they're set up um, specially to to crowd out and to edge out. Um, independent groups. Yeah. And it's easy for them to do that because they have the government's backing, they have the resources, they have the, the funds, yeah. So so that's what makes it difficult um, for you to, for, for any kind of broader based movement, yeah, to to develop. Yeah. Because um, these spaces, whatever spaces we have are also being occupied by by government proxies.
1: Oh my gosh, it just sounds so hard. So Given your, you know, your long years in, in activism, you know, not too long, you still look beautiful and young, but you know, like, (laughs) um, you know, but you've been at it long enough to have Mm -hmm. some, some serious reflection about how change happens. I'm interested in, you know, given that you're in an authoritarian space, um, and you've been working for a long time, what is your approach to making change? How would you describe or define how you seek to make change in that space?
0: well i in the last ten years um, uh, the advent of social media has been a revolution for Singapore. I think social media basically opens up spaces in authoritarian regimes, so um there have been a multitude of voices coming up, critical voices, yeah people blogging, writing on facebook, tweeting, and this has re- and it has really provided an an alternative platform for people to learn about what else is happening in Singapore. Because for decades, we've only read state propaganda through the mainstream media. Yeah. So, so my approach would be that it's important to occupy the space and to engage with people, whether they're Singaporeans or the rest of the world, and tell them what's happening. Yeah. And, um, and when you speak out, you, you normalise the process of doing advocacy and being an active citizen. Because for a long time, mm. being an active citizen just meant volunteering for a charity, um, running food drives. Yeah. yeah, but but speaking out, um, campaigning, lobbying—these were things which were not seen as things that citizens should do. Yeah, and and the space provided by social media has helped us um, do that. Yeah, so 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 that's what I do as an activist. Yeah, always broadcasting my thoughts. Um, um presenting alternatives and raising political consciousness and social consciousness um, through these platforms.
1: And it makes an, in an authoritarian space state, where you've got the media is controlled by the government. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a way in which communications were sort of banked down. Yes. But that's not the case now. So social media in your space, more so probably than anywhere else, mm-hmm. is, is so radical because it actually opens up something that had been intentionally shut down for so long.
0: Yes, that's right. But even when you do broadcast your thoughts on social media, um, if, you're, if you're an ordinary citizen and the government doesn't see you as threatening they tend to leave you alone. But if you are someone of some influence or if you have many followers or you're part of an NGO or an established group, then that's when the censorship comes in. That's when they will start calling you, asking you to come for meetings and saying, why did you say this? Um, why do you say it in this way? This is not true. Yeah, And it's also possible for the government then to talk to um, people who fund you and say, that you know we're not happy with this organization we don't like the way they do things you should consider putting your money somewhere else yeah so these are the kinds of behind the scenes oppression so while the government doesn't actively like you know like in Vietnam or China you know arresting dissidents on a daily basis and then torturing them in jail well, the, the Singapore government doesn't do that yeah so the way it cracks down on on dissent is to do these things quietly behind the scenes mm. yeah and then actively persecute maybe some opposition politician figures and people who are too critical of the regime as a way to create this culture of fear. Right? So so then when when other Singaporeans and activists see this happening, then they are frightened into submission. Because if you are if you become bankrupted by the courts or if you can't find a job because you're too outspoken, then your livelihood is is at risk. So nobody wants to then be too critical of the government or to be too active in civil society because of that.
1: So as a change maker, given that dynamic, so one wants to to try and normalise protest, normalise the idea of advocacy is important by speaking out on social media. That sounds like a one strategy, first strategy that's really critical. But then you're describing that you're doing a dance between being sufficiently critical, but not so critical that you're immediately crack down on. Mm-hmm. How do you do that dance? Like, what are the strategies you use to sort of make that work?
0: Well, um, it depends on what your objective is. Um, but it's, it's, it's a strategy that's constantly, um, you, you always have to do it and then re-strategize and then think about whether what you've done works or not because the boundaries are never that clear. Yeah. So you won't know you have transgressed them until something happens to you. So for instance, um, I'm being charged for organizing a vigil outside the prison. And such vigils have been a normal practice for a couple of years in Singapore. Yeah. So the person that I co-organized, the vigil that I'm currently being charged for, had been involved in other vigils in the past. And, but the Singapore government didn't decide to crack down on them. Yeah. But it's just that when I co-organized this one, um, together with her, they decided to charge me. Yeah, So so the law is there for them to use against you, but they will be very selective as to mm. when and who to target. Mm.
1: Arbitry, yes, arbitrary. Yes, it's exactly. arbitrary. Exactly. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God. So when you're doing your advocacy, are there ever any mass gatherings or are things done in more small groups? Like how would you conceive, how do people sort of go about... Like how, how, how do you do your politics in, right. in this space?
0: Okay, so if you organise a petition and you share it online, people are uh, usually happy to sign. Those who are not scared, yeah, they'll be happy to sign and put their name to it. Um, there's also a, a little park in Singapore. It's, it's our own version of Speaker's Corner. That's the only place where you can do a protest. Yeah. So if you organise uh, a protest there, some people will come and then um, they will participate in it. Um, and you can run online campaigns. Um, you can um, lobby um, government officials or even talk to your MPs if, if you're able to get access to your MP. Um, so, so these are the various ways in which advocacy is done um, in Singapore. Yeah, it's just that um, you just need to be careful how you package it. How um, the tone of your of your petition, for instance, or the statements that you issue, um, it shouldn't be too too critical because if it is, then um, the the establishment or the government may not want to listen to you, or or they might um, decide to um, um, do backdoor um, things, which I was telling you about, you know, all the stuff about um, cutting off your funding and all that. Yeah, so so it's not that you. Cannot participate in activism or advocacy. You can, but it has to be done in a way that the government approves of. Mm. So it's usually um, it cannot be too critical. It has to be kind of toned down and respectful. Yeah.
1: Do you think you're going to be able to change it?
0: Well, yes. I I think it can happen. Yeah, definitely, and it will happen. Um, it's just a matter of time. And um, people like myself and other activists and citizens, right, just speaking up and. Slowly opening up that space. yeah, the reason change doesn't happen now is because the level of political consciousness is very low. yeah, so we should so we should occupy those spaces which are independent and amplify and keep repeating our messages and talking. And slowly, the consciousness builds up, and then that's when um the change will will slowly happen. yeah, and also supporting one another, supporting opposition, political parties, supporting other groups um who are working on um issues like discrimination and amplifying their voices so i think when we do that the gradual process that's how we slowly build a movement yeah and also forging ties with activists overseas trade unions overseas because you know it's a globalized world right when we keep talking about globalization and all that yeah so and it's true a lot of our fates are, are interconnected
1: yeah Yeah, for for certain, part of the Australian economy is deeply interconnected with Singapore. So there's there's a sort of dual interest in trying to make that space a better place.
0: Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah.
1: So if there's once, is there a striking lesson? You know, you've been uh, involved in deeply involved in change making for quite Mm -hmm. a long time since 2004. Deeply involved in home. Um, Is there a striking lesson from your work that stands out that others could learn from?
0: I think you need to. I think reflection is important, talking to people, um, because activism is, a lot of it's about values, about the kind of society and the world that you want to see. Yeah, so, and we can't do this on our own. And we also need to clarify what we believe in, what we stand for. And in the process, especially if you're working in an authoritarian context, um, what are your fears? Where are your boundaries? And we need to have an honest conversation with ourselves and also with each other about that. Yeah. Because once you, you know what you stand for, uh, what are the risks that you can take, where your boundaries are, then you'll be able to survive as an activist um, in Singapore. And it's also important to... I mean, for me personally, I, I, I like to look at the light and humorous side of things. Yeah. And humor is important if you want to survive in activism. Yeah, because there's just so much bleakness and and you know, uh, oh you know the problems of the world kind of yeah. thing, you know, and like oh the burden, you know. So, so it's it's easy to 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 get into that, yeah, and to feel low and down, mm. yeah. So so I've always found that being able to laugh at even like the cruellest things that have happened, or to have an ironic um, take on things, and yeah, all all that helps in in coping. And also building solidarity with one another because when you share these stories, you have, you know, you, you, you build camaraderie. And I think that's, that, that's so important because, um, um, I mean, human beings, I mean, we can't survive on our own and um, we only make change if we do it together. Yeah, so community building, getting to know one another, supporting one another, I think we cannot underestimate that.
1: Yeah, what a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.